Take your Bible and make your way to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter number 8, excuse me, chapter 3. There's not eight chapters in Ephesians. Um, there's only six, so almost there. But uh, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8 through verse 13 is going to be our text as we're uh, continuing really the line of thought that uh, Paul had begun in the last message from last week. And so I've just made this a part two of the same subject. Uh, that has been been revealed in verses 1 down through verse 13. And that is the mystery of the gospel revealed. So this is the mystery of the gospel revealed, part 2. And so the context of this flows from verse 1 all the way down through verse 13. So I'm actually going to begin reading in verse 1, and then we'll look at verse 8 through 13 as our focus uh, this morning. So let's begin here, and we'll see the whole flow of what Paul is saying. Paul says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. And now we'll pick up in what our focus is for this text in verse 8. Paul says, to me, though I am very least, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is which is your glory. We noted last week that this section of Scripture seems to be almost like a detour that Paul has just decided to go on into some further explanation of the gospel mystery. It appears that he was going to begin praying for them about what he had said in verse in chapter 2. But under the divine guidance of the Spirit of God, Paul pins down verse 1, down through verse 13, and gives us further revelation of this great gospel mystery that he has mentioned throughout the book. Now we see that word mystery mentioned several times throughout Ephesians. Paul talks about it in Ephesians 1. He talks about it here in the middle of the book. And then he'll bring it up again at the end of the book. And so Paul makes this clear that there is a gospel mystery that has been unveiled and revealed in the person and work of Christ and that Paul himself is a minister of that message. Now, why is this mystery so important? Because the gospel mystery essentially is this. It is the eternal plan of God in Christ 
to redeem sinners from throughout the entirety of the world, making them one people in himself. And that is a glorious thought when you break that down. This gospel mystery that was spoken has been spoken of throughout the Old Testament, but it wasn't fully seen and understand understood. We looked at prophecies of Christ in the Old Testament during Sunday school, and we kind of touched a little bit on how that worked, how that the New Testament unfolds the Old Testament. But what you find is that under the Old Covenant, it was not as immediately understood, even though it was there. And then we come to the New Covenant, the New Testament, and it is plainly revealed to us. Now, any mystery that is solved or revealed gives great understanding to all the pieces that were part of the process, all of what was coming to pass that we couldn't clarify before. Now, some of the greatest books and movies are those that are somewhat mysterious, those that are mysteries. And uh, I tend to like those because I like to see different pieces throughout and try to figure it out for myself. And so by the time that you're trying to figure out you know, who's the guilty one or who did this or how this whole picture fits together before the end of the movie or before the end of the book. And and me, I usually like to speak out. Well, I bet this is going to happen. I bet so-and-so did this. And and usually that's when Bethany pipes up, will you shut up and just watch the movie? <laughs> uh, you know, she doesn't like me ruining it uh, for her because I'm a guesser. I want to figure out how this all works together before it actually is revealed. So when it comes to the promises of Christ in the Old Testament, how His redemptive work would be fulfilled and what that would fully do, it was there, but it wasn't fully clear. It was somewhat mysterious. And this is what Paul has unveiled throughout the book of Ephesians, that the gospel and God's working through Christ is now revealed through Him. Revealed. We learned last week that Paul, he's a chosen vessel for this very purpose, to communicate this message. We find that he gives us a direct revelation from God Himself. And we find in verse 6 that specific detail about the Gentiles and Jews together as one people. The Gentiles are heirs just as the Jews are. It all boils down to those being in Christ. And so now Paul continues expounding this gospel mystery and with it, he gives the Ephesians and us proper understanding and great glorious depths of it. So notice in our notes, number one, this morning, I want you to see the splendor of this gospel minute, gospel mystery, the, the splendor of it, the majesty, the, the glory of it. And, and as I come to verse 8, I, I, I park here for a moment and just expound a little bit because Paul brings out such great riches and depth here in this one little verse. I want you to see firstly that we are given the unsearchable riches of Christ. We are given the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, Paul starts verse 8 very humbly. He says with utter humility that he is the very least of all saints. Paul considered himself in such a low estate because he knew how unworthy he was of the salvation he had been given. Especially since he was on the other side persecuting the church. He was one hauling them off to prison and, and condoning their deaths. And so he feels the weight of that and understands that, that he's unworthy. But despite that, Paul says, this grace was given to me. This grace was given to me. Despite my unworthiness, this grace was given to me. 
This grace he's talking about, it's not only his call to salvation, but also this call to serve the Lord Jesus Christ with his life. And notice that the specific service he says he has is this. And I love this statement. It is to preach, verse 8, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. The unsearchable riches of Christ. How wonderful that statement by itself is. It includes so much that stirs my heart starting just with what he says about the honor of what it is to preach this message. Now, what is it to preach? Well, the word for preach simply refers to proclamation, to proclaim something, to herald aloud something. And specifically with what Paul is saying, he's talking about proclaiming the divine message of salvation. Now, we see the action of preaching all through the Scriptures by men called and used in this fashion. Even Jesus Himself comes on the scene in His earthly ministry and what's He doing? He's preaching. He's preaching the Gospel. The Gospel of the Kingdom of God and, and proclaiming it coming. And here's what Paul considers about this. He considers the call to preach as an honor of the highest order. 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 16. He says to that church, for if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. I know Harold would identify with that calling. I would. And I know that not everybody's called to that specific vocation. But what a weighty and honorable calling that is. But Christian, understand this, that, that even though God specifically calls certain men to preach the gospel, every believer in Christ is called to be a witness of that same gospel. You're called to be a light of what Jesus has done in His redemptive work, what He's done in your life. And so all of us, in one sense, we are heralds of the gospel, preachers of the gospel. Now, there are many who preach many kinds of messages in our day, right? You turn on the news, you've got so-and-so preaching this idea, so-and-so preaching this policy, and this thing is that what we need. This is going to fix our world. This is going to fix society. But there's a specific message that Paul's called to preach. And the message Paul's called to preach is really the only message that will fix anything in our world. It's the unsearchable riches of Christ. It is the message of Christ and who He is. Now, you'll notice that that Paul is specifically identifying this with preaching, the, preaching this message to the Gentiles. We've noted how Paul has been given this calling. It's unique to him in that day that he was to be the one to go beyond the Jewish barrier and take the gospel to those who had had no light of truth as to who the Messiah would be or even that there was a Messiah to come. And this is the immediate context of Paul's words. In Christ's person and work and for the world, there's a specific connection of Christ's riches in bringing the Gentiles into covenant with Him. And that's what he points out in chapter 1. In verse 18, he prayed that this Gentile church would, would, would know, would know what is the hope to which He has called you? What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? 
So, so those who had been left in darkness for so long, thousands of years, have been brought into the light by Christ and are partakers of His eternal blessedness. This is essentially what connects us to verse 6 and what the mystery is. But I want to dissect this a little further. Notice that Paul calls this message the unsearchable riches of Christ. Why does he say it that way? Why does he say it this way? Because the riches of Christ are unsearchable. <laughs> they're unsearchable. The, the Greek term there means they're inscrutable. They're, they're incomprehensible. They're beyond what we can fathom, what we can track down. It's, it's the same word used to describe the wisdom and, and knowledge of God in God's overarching redemptive purposes. Romans 11.33 Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. They're past finding out for us. Now this word essentially gives the idea of not being able to trace down. Meaning, there's no footprint to follow to which you can exhaust the whole of it. There's no footprint to follow in which you could exhaust the depths of the riches. You can't search and find out all that there is to know of the riches of Christ. You know, I was hunting once and I had a nice buck come up upon me by, back behind me on the hillside and to my left and, and I thought, man, this is it. I'm going to finally tag this buck and knock him out. And so I turned around, I thought I had a good shot, and I pulled my bow back and uh, gave a little grunt and let the arrow fly, and I could have swore I hit, I hit the deer. It sounded like it hit the deer, and then I thought, yes, I finally got this buck on the ground. Well, I sit there and wait a little while, and I get down and go over there, and I find the arrow, but no blood. You know, when you find an arrow with no blood, you're in trouble, right? <laughs> uh, uh, that means that uh, you might not have hit that dude. Good chance you didn't. And, and so I start looking for blood on the ground because when you hit a deer and it goes off, what do you use to try and find the deer? You follow the blood trail, right? You follow this trail to where you can find this deer that is yours, that you have claimed. And once I got down there, I realized that deer was gone and could not be tracked because the truth is, I never hit him. Never hit him. There was no trace of finding him. He was untraceable. And here's the reality is that there's many who think they have tracked down the depths of Jesus and they know all there is to know about Him. May I say that that is false? It doesn't matter if you've been in church all your life. Paul says that the riches of Christ is unsearchable. So, so understand, if you, if you act like a know-it-all about Jesus, that shows how little you know. None of us ever come to a point where we arrive and we just have everything figured out about Christ. We are students of Christ until we die. He is inexhaustible. He is deeper than you can dive. And while we can and should know much of the depths of the riches of Christ, understand the full exhausting of Him is impossible for us to track down in the fullest sense. Now, beyond the immediate connection here of the riches in Christ with the Gentiles, there's also the overarching truth regarding the very depths of who He is, what He has done, what He's doing, and what He's going to do. I like this quote by Charles Hodge where he says in reference to this, the unsearchable riches of Christ are the fullness of the Godhead, the plenitude of all divine glories and perfections which dwell in Him. 
the fullness of grace to pardon, to sanctify and save everything in short, which renders him the satisfying portion of the soul. Now, Paul ushers a great parallel passage to what he's saying in Ephesians. I want us to look at Colossians 1, 15 through 20 for a moment. This could be exhausted itself, but just to give you a brief snapshot of the depths of Christ and who he is and what he's done. Colossians 1 and verse 15 through verse number 20. Let's read this. Notice that, that Paul says here in this passage of Christ, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, and all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. You see great parallel in that passage with what Paul is saying throughout the book of Ephesians. The depths and glories of Christ. He, he is the infinite Lord, the Creator who, who ushered forth everything that we see and know. The One who, who sustains and holds it all together. You understand, our universe would fall apart were it not for the sovereign Lord who controls it all. We, 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 we would be in utter shambles. And, and, and what we find is that He redeemed us and brought us peace and brought us together through the blood of Christ all on, on that cross. You understand that the fullness of Christ is beyond fathom to us and it is by His fullness that His grace has come to us. Christ truly is our all in all, our everything. I share another quote. This one comes from Samuel Rutherford. Samuel Rutherford, a preacher many years ago, said, Christ is a well of life, but who knoweth how deep it is to the bottom? And oh, what a fair one. What an only one. What an excellent, lovely, ravishing one is Jesus. Put the beauty of 10,000, thousand worlds of paradises in one. It would be less to that fair and dearest, well-beloved Christ. You know, when I first surrendered to preach, I had a fear. You know what I feared, Brother Harold? I feared that I'd run out of things to preach. <laughs> I feared I'd run out of things to preach. And the more I studied, the more I realized how ignorant I was in my young age. Because, <laughs> you know, when you're young, you think you know everything. But then I come to study the Bible and I realize, man, there's so much here with Christ. And so Paul gives us here the unsearchable riches of Christ. But notice letter B also as he continues on in verse 9, we are given an unrestrained revelation of Christ. What do I mean by this? Look at verse 9. In talking about these unsearchable riches, he says, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery. The plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. 
You see, it's clear what Paul's saying. This magnificent gospel mystery is to be spread throughout the world to everyone. Now, why is that important? Because everyone throughout the world, wherever they may be, or whatever ethnic background they may have, they abide in darkness without Christ. They abide in darkness without Christ. And so the gospel of Christ and His kingdom, understand this, it extends to all nations. This is the whole point that there used to be an exclusive focus on, on the Jewish people, on the Jewish nation. And Paul is saying that is no longer because Jew and Gentile are one people together in Christ and the gospel here goes to the uttermost parts of the world. Paul was called to bring the light of this truth. To illumine God's people of His redemptive work in Christ to the world. This shows us a contrast between the Old and, old and New Covenant. During the Old Covenant, you read your Old Testament. Was there ever a great commission to go reach the entirety of the world with the Jewish faith and the promises of a coming Messiah? There wasn't. Now, by all means, the Jews, they were a light to those who were around them. They were meant to be a light. You have an example where God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach to them to repent. But there is no commission of God in the Old Testament to His people Israel, go to the uttermost parts of the world. So what happened with those nations that had, were far from Israel, far from God, had no light at all? They abode in their darkness only to perish in their sin. And this is what God has done through the cross. He has made it so that the light of His truth and gospel goes beyond the boundaries of Israel all the way to the United States of America, to South America, to Canada, to China, to Australia, to everywhere. And this is why Jesus gave His great commission. He said in Mark 16, 15 to His disciples, whose church go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. And this was Paul's mission, friends. And it is the mission of the church. Paul writing to the Romans in Romans 15, 20 and 21, he says, Thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I should build upon someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of Him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. See, Paul's quoting Old Testament about what's happening then and now in Christ. You see, why is it that you and I sit here today thousands of miles away from the land of Israel where Jesus died and rose again and we are worshiping this Jesus who is risen? We're worshiping Him together as one people. It's all because of this gospel mystery that's been unveiled in Christ. That it came all the way to us. Now you'll notice that Paul concludes this phrase by referencing God who created all things and there is a textual variant there whereby Christ is also included in, in uh, some translations. And so you'll see that the whole of this is true. This is indeed true that creation flows from Christ and the utter plan of redemption flows from the triune God. And the point is this, that God as the Creator has planned before creation to save His creation which includes every nation, people of every nation, tribe, and language. No one but the Creator can plan and fulfill this. Nobody else could. Only Him. 
So he has done this, and this is the splendor of the gospel mystery. Christ's riches are unsearchable, and Christ's revelation is unrestrained. But notice with me number two. I want you to see the spectacle of this gospel mystery. The spectacle. There's, there's a specific thing that, that, that is illumined and that shines forth through what God has done in Christ. And notice with me firstly, letter A, we see God's supreme wisdom in the church. His supreme wisdom in the church. We come down to verse 10. And notice that he says, So that... All right, so that connects to what all he just said and what he's done. Why has he done this? So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now understand that by the church, Paul is referencing the whole of those who are in Christ. The whole of Jews and Gentiles who are born again into the family of God. All of his redeemed people. They are one people, they are a heavenly congregation, which are manifested on earth in local visible congregations. So, so understand that one can't claim, well, I'm part of the church because I'm saved. Well, in a heavenly sense you are, but God commands you to be part of the local church. That's essential, alright? And, and so understand that, that what we see here with, with this broad outlook here, collecting Jew and Gentile into one people, through the church, he says, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. Now, let's ponder the wisdom of God for a moment. Like all of the attributes and characteristics of God, His wisdom is also beyond comprehension. It's unsearchable. By His wisdom, He created and established all things. Proverbs 3.19 The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. But beyond just creation, by his wisdom, he has orchestrated redemption in a magnificent, beautiful way. Paul connects his unsearchable wisdom to the overall plan of redemption in Romans 11, as we read a moment ago. But notice what Paul calls it. He calls it the manifold wisdom. Now, this word manifold, pertains to being diversified. This word was used in secular Greek to, to mean multicolored. In other words, his wisdom is marked by a variety of different aspects. Like a painter who uses various colors to create a masterful picture. Now, my kids love to do this, right? At this age, this age in their life, they come and bring me a, a, a you know one of them coloring sheets they ripped out of a book and they have they have colored one sheet but there's about fifty different colors right <laughs> and so uh, the color scheme doesn't you know it's it's beautiful in its own way because it comes from them I I try to hang on to those but this is this is what we're getting at is that that God has a perfect wisdom that that works in a broad variety of ways to complete His perfect picture of His redemptive plan. And how is the picture of God's redemptive wisdom displayed? Paul says it's through the church. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is put on display that He is reconciling those who were enemies to Him and to each other as one peaceful people. 
You see, how fitting it is that this manifold wisdom is to the church and what Paul's saying. The church is made up of people of every ethnicity, every language, every color, if you would, who are brought together as one people in Christ. And this is how it will be in heaven. We read last week, Revelation 5-9, where the saints sung a new song to the Lord and They say, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, and people, and nation. Friend, I wish we could see how glorious this is. This glorious unity of all peoples as one people in Christ. Only the wisdom of the omnipotent God can orchestrate such a redemptive plan as this. And He planned this in eternity and fulfills it in history. And friend, this shows us how important the church is as the people of God both collectively as a whole, but also locally as our local congregation. Do you understand the church is precious to God, so precious that Christ shed His blood for her. Shed His blood for her. There you often hear today that, well, I just need Christ. I study the Bible. I don't need church. Friend, if you study the Bible, you'll see that you must have church. Tony Marita said this, if you have a high view of Christ, you should have a high view of the church. You can't have a high view of Christ without a high view of the church. You must. Why? The church is His body. It's His body. He bled and died for them. And so this brings us to consider what Paul says next. Notice specifically, to whom is God's wisdom in the church a spectacle unto? There's a specific audience here that Paul makes reference in verse number... uh, Verse number 9, or excuse me, verse number 10. Notice this, that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, it is true that the church is a special witness to the world around us, right? We manifest God's supernatural grace in bringing us together. In Christ, regardless of ethnic or cultural distinction. But the witness of the church in this context is to angelic or spiritual beings, which is somewhat interesting. This is who Paul's talking about. Now, Paul uses the same kind of language later in chapter 6 once we get to it about evil spiritual forces. Ephesians 6 12, he said, We do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So is the church a spectacle to them? Well, in one way, the church is. You know what the church shows us? Through the church, Satan and his forces are brought face to face with the transforming power of the gospel that they cannot stop. You understand, all of hell can't save a sinner from being saved if God ordains him to be saved. He can't. He can't. Satan has no power. You see, the union of of, of people who were once enemies of God are now brought together, and this is a spectacle even to the forces of darkness. They may also see that there was no redemptive provision for angels who fell into their evil state. Redemption is uniquely only for the crown of God's creation, mankind. But then you also have beyond just the 
forces of darkness. Some want to exclusively leave it that this is only a spectacle of them. I would say it probably more broadly, it's a spectacle even to the holy angels. What do we know of them concerning God's redemptive plan? Let's look at Ephes- excuse me, 1 Peter 1 for a moment, just to give you a reference here. 1 Peter 1 and verse 10 through verse number 12. 1 Peter 1. Notice what Peter says here. I find this interesting. He says, Considering this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about this of the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that you have now been announced, that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And notice what he adds on here. Things into which the angels long to look. Things into which the angels long to look. Now, Peter's describing in another way what Paul's saying. How that in the old time, the prophecies were mentioned and of the redemption that would come and and it's revealed to us. But he, he adds that note that things into which the angels long to look. You know that redemption in Christ, it's not experienced by elect angels. They're just fixed in that position. They don't understand the experience that we have. They've not known the power of transforming grace. And Scripture says they desire to look into it. And with this plan of God that Paul is revealing to us here, what the angels are seeing is the uniting of hostile sections of humanity into one people. And this testifies to the reality of God gathering up all creation in one person in Christ. Something that Paul said in Ephesians 1. In verse number 10, that he might gather all things in heaven and on earth in Christ. Curtis Vaughn speaks on this and says, Angelic beings behold it with wonder as they see it in the purpose of God taking shape. They gain enlarged insight into the wonderful wisdom of God. Tony Marita said this on this, this point. I'm sharing with you just a couple quotes here. If you are part of the church, then you are part of a cosmic sermon that is being preached to spiritual rulers and authorities. John MacArthur put it this way. In the classroom of God's universe, He is the teacher, the angels are the students, the church is the illustration, and the subject is the manifold wisdom of God. I mean, there's so much there that we don't have time to exhaust. But how wonderful is the wisdom of God seen here all over this plan of redemption? Which leads us to number letter B here. Not only do we see God's working here in, in wisdom, but we also see God's sovereign working through Christ. Look at verse number 11. Verse number 11. Notice all of this plan hinges right here. This was according to the eternal purpose that He has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know what fascinates me, and probably forever will fascinate me, is the exhaustive sovereignty of God from beginning to end. The depths of His power and control. And I want you to understand that every unseen Detail plays into God's sovereign control through history all the way to the cross. And it's imperative that we see this plain truth. Notice it's according to His eternal purpose. Now, why is that word eternal important? 
Because it leaves no doubt that redemptive history was planned before creation in eternity. That it is an eternal plan. You see, understand, God did not create the world with a future of random events that He was out of control of. When mankind fell, God did not say, oh no, we got to go to plan B. And then that, that orchestrated the cross. No, friend. God has been in control from before His creation. Sovereignly working all the way up to the cross by which He would redeem all of His chosen people unto Himself. You see, God predetermined the Savior and those He would save, as seen in Ephesians 1. And Paul expresses this in a similar fashion in 2 Timothy 1 and verse 8-10. through 10. I want to read this briefly to you as it gives us the eternal vantage point that Paul teaches 2 Timothy 1 and verse 8 through 10. You'll notice he's encouraging this young preacher and says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel. When was this calling given? It was given before the ages began. How is it revealed to us? Through Christ who brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel. So you understand that from eternity past, this plan would be realized in one person. Jesus. In one person. One person. It would be all in Christ. That's why we looked at uh, Old Testament prophecies in Sunday school. They're all about Him. They come to Him. They find their fruition in Him. It is in Him that this blessedness is and what He's done in the cross. Now we know that the world fails to see the glory of this work of God in Christ. They do not see the cross and redemption as a spectacle. They see it as silliness. Paul said that plainly in 1 Corinthians 1, 22 and 24. Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are what? Called. Both Jews and Greeks. Christ the power of God and the wisdom. The wisdom of God. You see, we who are called unto Christ have seen and known the glory of the cross and what Jesus has done. And though the world around us may hate that message and reject that message, we know the glory of that message and it's a message that can never be hindered or stopped. By way of the cross alone, the sinner is redeemed and reconciled both to God and to each other. And friend, today I want you to understand that if you do not know Christ and you are not saved, there is no way for you to be saved outside of the cross alone. You must look to Jesus in faith. You have no salvation but in Him. It's not in you. It's not in the church. It's not in tradition. It's not in your works. It's not in anything. If you're looking to anything other than Christ, you're looking to the wrong place. 
It is only in Christ alone. He is a spectacle beyond measure. And this is the gospel mystery revealed to his people. Notice with the lastly, number three. I want you to see the substance of this gospel mystery. What does this revealed mystery in Christ do for us? His redemption, his reconciliation of sinners to God and men from every nation. And here's a wonderful privilege that you and I can count on. It's that every believer has a privileged standing before God. And you see that in verse 12. Notice what Paul makes plain. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. Now Paul already said this once before in chapter 2 verse 18, but he says it again because it's that important. In Christ, whether you're a physical Jew or a Gentile, you have bold, confident access to the true God. This boldness speaks of an absence of fear or restraint. You don't have to fear coming before God if you're in Christ. This access speaks of our direct approach to God that the barrier is no longer there. This confidence suggests an assurance of our acceptance in coming to the Lord. So understand that all three of these bind together, giving the believer the utmost assurance in coming to God. You know, our children have all three of these qualities when they come to us. They have direct access to us. There's no barrier for them to get to us. They can come boldly without fear. They can have confidence that we're going to listen. That they'll be heard. Now, sometimes they're a little timid because when they come to you and they're hard to get it off their lips, it's because they know they're asking for something that we're going to say no to. They're asking for something off limits. But when we think about God and His children, how much more so do we have this access to our Heavenly Father? All those in Christ can come to the Father at any place and at any time. And that is a privilege I fear the church today does not take advantage of like they ought to. We lack power in our churches because we lack prayer in our churches. We must come to the Lord. Do not hesitate to pray, Christian. We look at why this is such a privilege because long ago it wasn't possible. God restricted His access to a specific system and temple and sacrificial way to a Jewish identity and in being near unto God. But now because of the Gospel, this mystery that's been fulfilled in Christ, the temple of God is not in Jerusalem, it's in the church. It's you. And Christ alone has given us access to God as our mediator. The one who stands in between us. The one who we count worthy to go to. 1 Timothy 2.5 tells us there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So Jews and Gentiles have the same privilege in Christ. The same God that called Abraham and covenanted with his descendants has brought Gentiles into that same covenant. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David, and Solomon, and all the others we could name, is the God of the Gentiles too. The Jewish Messiah is the world's Messiah. And as the Messiah whose office is great high priest in heaven, you understand the believer can come to the Lord without any doubt of approaching Him. 
Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 4.16, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Friend, this is the substance of what the gospel mystery has brought to you personally along with redemption. And notice lastly this morning, and I'll close, verse 13. Letter B, I want you to see that all suffering is for a glorious purpose. All suffering is for a glorious purpose. And this is one we must understand and see. We see this with Paul himself. Paul had mentioned at the beginning of this chapter that he's a prisoner. And he says that he's in prison on behalf of the Gentiles, which is because of the Gospel going to the Gentiles. That's all linked together. But now in verse 13, he repeats that truth. And notice what he says. So I ask of you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. You see, in that one statement, he gives them proper perspective of what's going on in his life. He wants them not to lose heart. He's asking the Ephesians, don't become faint. Don't be discouraged by what I am enduring on your behalf. Now, if someone I knew was suffering because of me or on behalf of me, I would feel pretty down about that. I don't want that for someone. I don't want people to suffer on behalf of me. But this was Paul's calling, right? And he wants them to understand this principle. That, that his calling to suffer is for a purpose that is under God's providence. And that providence of his suffering was for the very purpose of advancing the gospel to the Gentiles. He said to the Philippians when he's in prison to them, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. You see, Paul didn't care so much about what happened to him as long as what was happening to him was to the good of the gospel and the church is being strengthened. He would endure whatever it took for the save, for, for God to save his people, as you see in 2 Timothy 2.10. Paul said to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 1, 5 and 6, for as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. So you see that Paul's heart is for the people of God. Paul knew that the suffering he was experiencing was not empty, that though he was bound in chains, the Word of God was not bound. And as a result of his suffering, you'll find that God's people were actually emboldened with the Gospel. If Paul can endure this for the Gospel, so can we. So can we. And here's the reality, Christian, for all of us, is that any suffering that we go through, it is always under the care of God's precious providence. Do you really believe He's sovereign over everything? Or only when it's good? There's a lot of people that think that way. God's sovereign over the bad just as much as He is over the good. And if He's sovereign over that, what does that mean? That means that He's allowed you to go through something for the sake of His glory and for your good. And Paul understood that with all suffering, there was glory beyond measure from it. Romans 8.18, and I'll close with this verse. He said, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing 
with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Friend, when we get to heaven, all the sufferings that we endure, and you understand, it'll be worth it all. It'll be worth it all. And this is one of the great truths of the mystery of the gospel is that what God has done in redemption, whether it brings to us suffering or peace in our life, it is always given with eternal purpose and providence. And as I evaluate this mystery of the gospel, it truly is marvelous to me to see how God has orchestrated and worked all of this out. But it's no longer a mystery now, is it? It's realized, it's revealed to us in the New Testament. So Christian, here's what I encourage you today. I encourage you to look at this redemptive plan that God purposed for you. Consider it in an individual way. For you are saved yourself by Christ alone. I encourage you to thank Him for this gospel mystery that He revealed and fulfilled. Rejoice in it. Live by it. And tell someone else about it. Tell someone else about it. Today, if you don't know Christ truly, I want you to understand that Christ and His cross, His blood atonement, that is your only hope. And today, if you see your desperate need, you need Christ, you're a sinner, you, you don't have any hope, you see it's Him alone. The Bible says, repent and believe the Gospel. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Let's stand to our feet as we have a closing song this morning. Father in heaven, we bow before you this morning and thank you for this wonderful text of Scripture, how rich and how deep it is. I know that time does not allow us to exhaust all that could be brought from it, but we are thankful, Father, for what we have been able to see. Father, your wisdom is beyond what we can fathom. The riches of Christ are unsearchable. They're untraceable to us. We praise you, Father, from the depths of our hearts for what you have done on behalf of us as your people. I pray that today you would encourage your people. Maybe they've had a rough week. Maybe they've gone through some trials, some things they've endured. Lord, none of those things change this truth today of who they are in Christ. That is eternally the same from beginning to end. And if there's any today that is lost and undone, Lord, it's my prayer that you would open their eyes to see, give them ears to hear, convict their heart, regenerate their heart, that they would believe on Christ and be gloriously saved and know the wonder of what we've seen here today. In Jesus' name, amen.